everybody, welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I talk with author and scholar Robert P. Jones, who's the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and is a leading scholar and commentator on both religion and politics. Jones writes regularly on politics, culture, religion, and other topics for the Atlantic, Time, and Religious News Service. He is frequently featured in major national media such as MSNBC, CNN, NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Disarming Leviathan Podcast. He holds a PhD in religion from Emory University and a Master's of Divinity from the venerable Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of books like White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and The End of White Christian America. He's also recently published a new book called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, which helps us understand how historic issues of race, supremacy, and power dynamics shape the modern American Christian nationalist movement. Uh, I believe that this interview will help give us a broader understanding of how we got to where we're at today and how we can address it as faithful followers of Jesus. So without further ado, here's my interview with Robert P. Jones. Robert, in your book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy, The Path to a Shared American Future, you talk about this thing called the doctrine of discovery. You mentioned that it's like a Rosetta Stone for understanding our nation's story, even some of the deep stories in Europe, political thought and religious worldviews. What is the doctrine of discovery and, and help us understand how it's like a Rosetta Stone? All right. Well, we're going to jump right to it, it sounds like. Um, yeah, great. Well, thanks for having me on, uh, first of all, and for the conversation. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, when you hear the doctrine of discovery, it sounds very heady and um, formal and all that. And of course, it, it was actually um, like its specific definition is a set of doctrines that was developed in the Western Christian Church, um, and they were way back there in the 15th century. Um, now, it's important to understand, like, so why, you know, whenever we have doctrines that develop, they're usually developing in response to a set of problems that the church is encountering. Um, and so what's going on, right, in, in the 15th century? Well, it is the uh, the way we were taught about it. It's the great age of, quote, unquote, discovery um, that's happening, right, with Europeans who are encountering all these people. Uh, that they didn't, and lands that they didn't know existed. And so that raised political problems, it raised moral questions, and it raised theological questions. And so who do they look to? They look to the head of the Western Christian Church at the time, which was the Pope. So just to clarify, there were no Protestants in the world at this point in time, uh, right? That doesn't happen until the end of the 1500s. There's also no Church of England um, at this time, right? So all of Western Europe is Catholic. Um, it is, and so the, the, the Pope in Rome is the head of the Western Catholic Church. And, and it's also kind of the closest thing to kind of a moral, international moral authority and international law that existed at the time. So there was really a question put by Christian kings and queens to the church and said, look, what's our moral and religious responsibility toward these people that we are encountering here? Because this is something new. We, have, we don't really have a theology for this and over a course of uh, you know about half a century from 1452 to 1493 there's a set of doctrines that get issued and they, they get issued by uh, a number of popes uh, in these official opinions called papal bulls and that collection of those things is what's collectively known as the doctrine of discovery 
And so while they're, you know, they're written in Latin and they're formal theological docu documents, they actually boil down to something quite simple um, at the end of the day. And, and by the way, if your readers want to go read or your listeners want to go um, read them, there's actually a, a website called doctrineofdiscovery.org where you can actually read them. If you're a classics person, you can read them in Latin or they're translated in English um, as well if you want to kind of read them for yourselves. But they, but they essentially, with a lot of formal theological structure, boil down to this. The, the, the kind of defining question that determined whether or not these people, newly discovered from the European perspective, had any human rights that were bound to be um, respected was essentially one question. And that question was, are they Christian? And if the answer to that was no, uh, then uh, it, the doctrines go on to basically just uh, give permission to European Christians to occupy their land, to steal their goods, and if they resist, to either kill or enslave them. And you know, and they're not kind of subtle about this. Like you know, one of the documents, in fact, says that European Christians have the right to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Right? That's in the document from the hand of the head of the you know Western Christian Church. Um, at the time. So, you know, if we think about, you know, the version of Christianity that just lands on the shores of the Americas, it, it's animated by this idea, all right, uh, the superiority of Christianity, the superiority of Europeans uh, to everyone in the world with the blessing of the church and the power of the state uh, to conquer, to kill, um, uh, and to enslave. So in America, we have this story of 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He lands in the Americas. He discovers, is the language that I remember learning as yeah. a kid. Uh, he discovers the Americas, but he also discovers like uh, people here, <laughs> uh, thus muddying the waters of what it means to discover. And what I'm understanding you to be saying is that, that this created a dilemma of what do we do? Can we take this property for ourselves or not? Because as Christians, we don't steal, we don't do murder and stuff like that. So there's this economic motivation, as sounds like as well as moral. Like, did Columbus create the need for the doctrine of discovery? Yeah. Well, Columbus was actually kind of late on the scene. I mean, the, the, the first one of these gets uh, issued in 1452, right? So a good 40 years before Columbus sails the ocean blue, uh, as we as we learn about. Um, and, and the last one that's of most, the last papal edict that's most relevant is called Intercatera in Latin, but it was issued in 1493, right? And, and Columbus did precipitate that one. And what's significant about 1493? Well, it's the year he goes back after being here. And by the way, just for our American uh, listeners, um, you know, he doesn't arrive in any of the uh, within the borders of what we call the United States ever, um, right? So he never sets foot on what we think of today as American soil. Um, uh, you know, it, it's um, Hispaniola, it's in the Caribbean, uh, but never in the kind of what we think of as the mainland United States today. Uh, but he goes back, and and that's when he he, he um, appeals to the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, who we also, those names we typically know from American history, but he asked them for more ships, more soldiers, more missionaries. And then he asked the church for this moral mandate backed up by a kind of new uh, theology for the quote unquote new world. So that's a bunch of European stuff, but Robbie, I'm an American. <laughs> so how has this European Catholic thing, the doctrine of discovery, how has that influenced 
the American story and how we think of things like westward expansion. So I, I live in Arizona. It wasn't Arizona 120 years ago. It was something else. Yeah. How have you seen Doctrine of Discovery influence America's story and history? Yeah, well, it, it sets up really the entire expand kind of, you know, with words that we have to describe this thing. Like we, we talk about manifest destiny, um, you know, a, a new Zion, like those kind of language that, that also kind of tells us that it is in fact a kind of religious, like that language, new Zion, right? is straight out of the Bible, um, right? And so it's mapping this conquest, this kind of biblical conquest onto the new continent. I, even things that sound sort of benign, like a city set on a hill from John Winthrop, uh, for example, the early um, you know, British colonies. Turns out that you know, if you would ask the Native Americans at the time that lived near Winthrop what, a, a, what, what, what they felt about a city set on a hill, I mean, it really did mean death and disease for them, um, you know, violent death uh, at the hands of, of Winthrop and the other colonizers there. And and also disease that was spread uh, from, from Europeans into indigenous people as well. So these, you know, we, we've kind of uh, developed a benign set of euphemisms, pioneers, you know, these kind of, like I said, manifest destiny to really describe what really is a very violent conquest and colonizing, right, of an already occupied land. And then it was justified, you know, really in the name of, I mean, these people were called, you know, in really bellicose language, again, in the, in the, in these documents of the doctor of discovery, you know, if they were not Christian, they were referred to as quote unquote enemies of Christ, right? This very bellicose language uh, that again, kind of set people up in this oppositional, you know, violent stance uh, uh, toward indigenous people. So we have in our national imagination, like the Oregon trail, yeah. Cowboy movies, dan dances with wolves. Underneath all that is this idea that it's justifiable, religiously justifiable to take the property because the people are enemies of Christ. Is that, am I catching that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and as such had no rights uh, to the land. And, you know, this isn't just a, you know, it's the theology, the Christian theology that under, undergirds it with a kind of moral strength, but it also gets incorporated into U.S. law. Um, you know, um, uh, Johnson v. McIntosh in the early 1800s was a precursor to what came to be known in American history as Indian removal, right? This kind of policy of the federal government of pushing indigenous people off their lands. Uh, you know, in the 1830s, it was mostly concentrated on moving large numbers of tens of thousands of indigenous people out of the southeast, ac west across the Mississippi River. Uh, to places like Oklahoma, and they end up in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico as well, you know, um, and, and, and so it was that, but then it just kept pushing, right? It kept pushing westward. And so, you know, as we get la statehood later in the Western states than we do in the Eastern states, but all the creation of those states, right, were about putting European boundaries around what was, uh, and, and in many cases, was promised to forever be indigenous land. So you mentioned that some of these ideas were codified in our laws, uh, even maybe in our founding documents. H how might our founding documents have been influenced by this? Yeah, so I had all this you know, religious history, uh, but I never really scrutinized how this shows up, even in our founding documents. You know, we're quite rightly proud of the Declaration of Independence and for the principles, right, of freedom, equality, 
um, uh, that are kind of throughout that document. But what we, I, if you read the whole thing, um, you know, you kind of get midway down and there's a whole passage describing indigenous people as merciless savages, right? And one of the grievances, uh, well, actually two of the grievances that are uh, uh, um, espoused against the King of England in the Declaration of Independence have to do with enslaved Africans and and uh, indigenous people, right? Um, so one of the things is the, um, the the king is not allowing the colonists to expand beyond the Appalachian, west of the Appalachian Mountains, where the colonists want to go, uh, because the king has actually reserved those lands for indigenous people. Uh, and they're complaining about that. And then they're also complaining that the king is allowing uh, slave rebellions among them. Like that's all in the Declaration of Independence, along with these higher principles. You know, we get to the Constitution, um, even there, right? Um, it explicitly excludes Indians in the document, uh, you know, from the, even from the Bill of Rights and, and, and whenever it's talking about the rights of citizens. Um, it also famously excludes women and, and counts, uh, you know, uh, African-Americans as three-fifths of a person, uh, right? And then only for the empowering uh, whites in the states in which they live. They can't vote themselves, but, but whites get basically themselves plus three-fifths of the African-Americans who live in their uh, jurisdictions to empower them politically. So I think we, we forget that, like, it's just all mixed up together, right? And I think that's one of the challenges, even for our day, is that we have these two traditions, a kind of proud, democratic pluralism, um, you know, that is no matter what you're raised, no matter what your religion, you stand on equal footing uh, before the Constitution and on equal footing with all other citizens. Uh, that's a very proud tradition. And then we have this other competing tradition that has been with us from the beginning and is still with us today that claims that America is a kind of promised land for European Christians and everybody else is second-class citizens. So we've covered the 1400s all the way into the 1800s. And for many of us, that's in our imagination. It's yeah. just what we learned in history. It's the movies we've seen. It's the stories we tell ourselves. How do you see the doctrine of discovery manifesting itself today in our national conversations or our national imagination? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing for, you know, just our imaginations is that I think we've dulled our imaginations even to the things that are right in front of us. Right. Um, and I think it's particularly true for um, you know, Western states. Uh, you know, you're in Arizona. But like if you think about just the, the names on the map, right, Tucson. Phoenix. Uh, there's also uh, Navajo uh, reservations, right? Um, uh, and something like Fort Apache reservation, um, even, right? What is that about? Um, and so if you start unpacking, you know, those those histories, it's right there in front of us, you know, that, that it still exists, rivers, mountains, you know, it's all right there, county, county names uh, testify to the history that we try to kind of hold at bay, but it's right there, I, I think, in front of us. Uh, but but it's also uh, quite present in the the our current political uh, conflicts. One of the um, really striking things that uh, I, I note in the book is that you can actually measure the continued influence of these again, like 15th century, you know, 500 year old uh, documents in American attitudes today. So we we asked on a, a, a public opinion survey this year in 2023, do you think that uh, uh, that that America was destined by God? Uh, to be a promised land for European Christians, where they could set an example for the rest of the world. And three in 10 Americans agree uh, with that statement. Um, and, you know, you could say, 
two thirds of Americans reject it, but it's still a sizable mi uh, minority of Americans that agree with it. And here's the kicker though, is that those, uh, they're not evenly distributed across our political space, right? That 30% is disproportionately white evangelical and Republican. Um, so a majority of Republicans and a majority of white evangelicals uh, today agree with that statement. That's who America is and who America is for, right? Is European Christians. And that's something that was designated by God. And you could draw a straight line from that sentiment straight back to the 500 years of Christian theology that landed on these shores. Yeah. And many of the American Christian nationalist circles uh, that I've listened to or been a part of, you will hear people like Columbus, uh, people like the founders uh, lauded, uh, elevated, celebrated as great, the words you use, great pioneers, uh, great men of industry and uh, geniuses who, you know, made America great. And somewhere, at least in their imagination, we've lost that greatness. The undertone is it's no longer Protestant European descendants having all the power. And that's kind of the thing that we're missing. And so phrases like make America great again seem to be this toxic nostalgia, distorted nostalgia that looks back on a imagined era of great prosperity. Usually the image is uh, white upper middle class people in suits and ties wearing cross necklaces and whatnot. Uh, and so we certainly see it, even though it's not pronounced, Doctrine of Discovery doesn't get used by Christian nationalists in America. Manifest destiny is not a phrase that usually gets thrown around, but these ideas are certainly the baseline of many of the American Christian nationalists that we encounter. Uh, thinking about like on the ground now, like at the dinner table, how might words or phrases or ideas uh, that some of our friends, family, coworkers mm -hmm. are, when they're talking to us, what can we be listening for in their talk track uh, and maybe tether that to Doctrine of Discovery. Yeah. Well, look, as you know, I mean, I'm from the South. I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up white evangelical, a Southern Baptist, you know, in Mississippi. And my family has been Baptist in the South for six generations, um, right? So um, I know of which you speak, um, you know, friends and family. Um, I mean, I think it shows up most frequently in, in the kind of really common claim uh, that, that America is a Christian nation. Like that's the kind of vernacular, I think, of, of the most common expression. But, you know, it's always, I think, if you just kind of like slow it down, unpack it, what do you mean by that? What, one, what historically do you mean by that? And then like, what's the implication of that today? Do you really mean uh, that, you know, our friend down the street who's Baha'i or our friend down the street who's Jewish um, doesn't have the same rights that we do? Like, is that really what you mean? Um, you know, what's the implications of making that? That claim, but I think you're right about that. That nostalgia and that kind of, and as you said, toxic nostalgia. And that word again is really where all the power is. It's always worth asking that too. When when is the again right? Um, when when are we talking about? Because they're not talking about 1490 uh, when America was great, right? Um, when it was fledgling little colonies, you know, uh, or not even colonies, but fledgling little European incursions. They're not talking about 1619, uh, when there are very vulnerable British colonies kind of clinging to the shores and clinging to for survival uh, in the country. So when are we talking about, you know, and it often, as, as you say, I think it often is kind of a version of, you know, 1950s 
America. You know, somewhere before Brown v. Board of Education, uh, when we saw segregated schools, the Jim Crow in the South, and there's just a clear hierarchy. And, and I think that is what's often being invoked is a hierarchical claim. And that, at the root of it, that really is what the Doctrine of Discovery is claiming, is that there is a divinely ordained hierarchy in the world, right? Um, and it is Christians over everyone else. It is people of European descent over everyone else. And frankly, it's men over women uh, in that vision you know, as, as well. And everybody ha has been created to be in their place and should stay in their place, right, is, uh, is the vision of that. And, and so, you know, it's worth kind of, is that really what we believe? Is that really what we're, you know, and sorry, I think trying try to kind of have a conversation with probing questions that is like about just trying to get the quiet part to be said out loud, I think is part of the way of having, you know, some discussion that doesn't just devolve into a, a shouting match at the end of the day. Yeah, we've got this uh, desire, this really good desire for belonging and safety. And when I imagine what it might have been like in the 1950s, in Eisenhower's America, uh, if I can project onto that my desires of safety, belonging, everything as it should be, white picket fences, food on the table, dad at work, mom taking care of kids. But we forget ourselves because the 1950s was horrible for almost everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah. Even the people that we're imagining ourselves to be, you had this uh, rising tension, uh, the nuclear threat with yeah. USSR. Children uh, in that era were doing atomic bomb drills under their desk at school. That's yeah. terrifying. And I, yeah, the I poverty rate for seniors was off the charts because it's before Social Security. Yeah, and spousal abuse was sky high. Uh, many of the things that we say today are increasing did exist. They just didn't talk about it. So divorces were quiet. Spousal abuse was quiet. Infidelity was rampant, but quiet. Uh, we didn't have Twitter. So all that to say that when, when we're talking with folks, the desire is good to belong, to be safe, to flourish within a community. But the answer is broken because it's projecting those desires onto an idealized past that never actually existed. And Robbie, as you said, especially for people of color, for indigenous peoples, for anyone who wasn't a white dude, uh, a wealthy or middle-class white dude, uh, it, it was pretty miserable. And it's not to say that we don't have problems today, but the desire is good. And I think for those of us encountering uh, this rhetoric, uh, this American Christian nationalist rhetoric, or even political commitments at the dinner table, at, at the workplace. Robbie, I love what you're saying, helping them to see what's underneath that statement and that desire. And then asking, how do we get back to that? How do we accomplish those desires? Are we really saying we want to segregate society or kick out people who are not Christians? Is that what we're saying? Just to help, again, say the quiet part out loud, uh, because it may be that our conversation partners are just repeating rhetoric that they've been right. hearing over and over again. Yeah. And it's, it's a borrowed conviction. It's not a deeply held conviction. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that there's a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric, right? Like that this is the end of America. This is the end of the world as we know it. And there's a way in which it's not completely untrue. If you think that the world that they're talking about is a kind of white supremacist world, right, where, you know, particularly white, straight Christian men, um, you know, kind of have the road open up before them and everybody else has to kind of scramble. It is true. But but that's not a world we should be striving to hold on to you know, at, at the end of the day. And, and so I think 
letting, you know, being willing to sort of like say, okay, yeah, that, that, that initial fear we feel about that, those of us who are white and Christian is, is, is not coming from nowhere, right? The world is changing. The country is changing, right? And white Christians are in fact only 42% of the country uh, today, right? That, that's take, that takes some getting used to if you're used to being a super majority um, in the country, but you know, it doesn't have to be like a cliff we're about to walk over, right? It, it can be a transition. And in many ways, you know, we can look for the promise of uh, giving us an opportunity to reclaim, you know, some of those higher principles in those founding documents. We're so proud of kind of quoting, you know, but things like equality, uh, fraternity, right? Um, you know, uh, liberty for everyone, um, not just for the privileged few. Uh, those are those are things we can all get behind. And I think in some ways, this, the demographic changes are calling us to account for whether we ever really meant it when we espouse support for those principles, or if we only meant it when it was mostly benefiting people who look like us. Yeah. And also as followers of Jesus, we're called to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. And there really is something being lost in the lived experience of many who hold to American Christian nationalism. They feel the sadness and pain of a lack of familiarity with their own community. Uh, I've, I've been with people who've said, you know, I used to be that I could safely walk down the street to the grocery store, and now that's over. Well, there's maybe all sorts of reasons why that's happening. They may be ascribing that to, you know, the, the wrong, they may be diagnosing it incorrectly, but the pain is real. What used to feel familiar and safe is now not feeling, now does not feel familiar or safe, and that causes us fear and anxiety, which is being leveraged by a lot of Christian nationalist leaders uh, for power and money. But at the dinner table, at the workplace, we can connect with people around that fear. You know, America isn't what it used to be. Well, I, I feel that too. You know, my neighborhood's changing, my community's changing, but as followers of Jesus, how can we enter into that change without being led by fear? And that may be a space in which we can invite people to take a look at what is causing the fear. And then how does Jesus speak to that? Uh, Robbie, yeah. you, Amen to that. Yeah. you've done a lot of work in research and you kind of got your finger on the pulse of how Americans and or American evangelicals are shifting and what their uh, political commitments are. As you think about specifically the evangelical church in America, how would you encourage the church collectively uh, those in the pews and those in the pulpits uh, to move forward in a healthy way. Wow. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, you know, when I, I've been asked, like, so why are you writing all these books with the word white and Christian in, in the titles? Um, you know, it's the third one I've written on this topic um, over the last 10 years. And I think it's because I just continue to wrestle, you know, with it. And I continue to see the church, uh, white, particularly white church, predominantly white churches wrestling you know, with it, it is going to be, I think, a multi-generational effort at the end of the day. We're not going to solve 400 years of problems in uh, a single generation, nor should we expect to. But but I think we've got really important work to do. Um, and I think this generation can really be the one, I, I think, that can break the chain, right? And they can actually be aware of things that I think were so easy to be blind to um, in, in previous generations. You know, there's a way in which, you know, I don't know, people living in those kind of white Christian suburban bubbles uh, in the 1950s and 60s could kind of just stay there. Right. I, but I think there's there's no 
no, the accountability I think for white Christians today is there. Like there's no white Christian today that can possibly live in that kind of a bubble. Um, and so, you know, we're responsible for what we see, but, but I do think the, the, the promise really um, is not just a kind of, you know, beating ourselves up, but, you know, if you think about, if you kind of take seriously this trajectory, that if we did allow the politics of empire and violence to take over Christian theology, right? Or we, we allow Christian theology to be in the service of those things. That gives us something actually really important to do, right? Is to disentangle it uh, from those from those efforts. And that's like a noble thing to be proud of, right? If we're working in that vein. And it, it's a gift to our children and our children's children uh, to be working uh, in, in that vein. So I think we just kind of take a beat, uh, take a breath, right? And, and realize that, oh, you know, actually the, the, the discipleship might actually consist of more than going to church with a bunch of people who look like us and hearing comforting messages uh, every Sunday, or maybe being obsessed about our own sexual, you know, uh, sins, which is mostly what I think evangelical churches have done in my experience, uh, and actually thinking more about the world. Uh, right. Instead of just about ourselves. Um, so I, I think there's a real opportunity here for something new. And, and, and goodness knows, if you look at young people today and their attitudes toward the white Christian churches, goodness knows we need something new uh, because those folks are walking with their feet. I mean, today it's four in 10 Americans under the age of 30 who claim no religious affiliation. Like they haven't not, I'm not, not just people who don't go to church, but are saying like, I'm not going to claim any of these labels, Christian, Jewish, none of them, like a pox on all of it, um, right? Four in 10, we've never seen a generation uh, in their 20s uh, uh, that, you know, really that distant from organized uh, faith faith and religion. So I, I think there's a real opening here and a demand, right, that, that for accountability uh, for white Christians to kind of stand up and take a deep, deep, uh, you know, um, self ex- kind of self-examination and, and, and uh, restock. That's so good. Well, uh, Robert P. Jones, thank you so much for joining us on uh, this episode of Disarming Leviathan. Where can our listeners find you and your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, uh, the research from Public Religion Research Institute is at prri.org. We have uh, public opinion surveys at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics all the time coming out. Um, uh, You can find me um, writing weekly at uh, my newsletter, uh, which is at uh, whitetoolong.net. Um, uh, so it's on Substack. You can find it there. Um, uh, and, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm actually trying these days more on Blue Sky and uh, Threads uh, than any, anywhere else. Uh, but we're all kind of confused right now about social media. Uh, but, uh, but that's where I am on social media. Uh, but the, the book is available, Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Uh, it's audiobook. Uh, Kindle, you know, ebook. Uh, it's hardcover. All the all the versions you might want, uh, pretty much wherever books are sold. That's so good, man. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. All right, thanks so much.